potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome, everybody, again to another episode of our show today, bringing you a really awesome guest uh, who is involved in creating a better and safer tomorrow uh, for all of us. Uh, today, we have the honor of being joined by Colonel Tina Schoenberger, who is the director of the United States Army Nuclear and Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction Agency, also known as USANCA, which is a United States Army headquartered field operating agency. Uh, of both military and civilian professionals specialized in nuclear and weapons of mass destruction, um, and they are headquartered in Fort Belvoir, Virginia. We have a lot of interesting themes to get into today. Um, we're honored to have our Colonel Tina Schoenberger, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. And of course, thank you for your long service to the United States. Thank you so much for having me, Ira. I really am honored to be here today and have this conversation with you. Uh, I can tell you that, yes, I've been I've been working in the CMD community enterprise for well over 20 years. And so um, the joke that we like to say is it's a really small community and it's usually, so where are you now when you see somebody? Because we all stay in this community and we just move to different locations throughout. So it's amazing community to be a part of, um, ton of professionals, and we get to work with some really interesting, you know, organizations and interagency partners. And so hopefully we'll talk through some of that today, but thank you so much for having me me and i'm looking forward to the conversation yeah me me too and um yeah it's gonna be fun uh, not just learning about what you're doing now but everything you've, you've done in the past I, I would love to to start off tina by um by handing you the floor for a bit i we i think i'd love to hear a little bit more uh, of your background story i mean if you could tell us everything from you know where you grew up uh how you got interested not just in um biology molecular biology um and then take us a little into you know i i uh, i enjoyed reading about some of your publications which had uh Themes like biodegradation, bioremediation, biodeterioration, all stuff that uh, obviously you're going to use later on in your career when dealing with some of that really nasty stuff. Talk a little bit about how you got interested in this space. So very interesting beginnings. So started out um, right outside New Orleans, Louisiana. My mom is from New Orleans. My dad is from New York. And so little small town called Chalmette, Louisiana. So right outside New Orleans. And so grew up there. My, my family, really, the military and service is a family trait for us. So my father uh, was a retired first sergeant. Um, my brother is in the military. He's retiring. My sister, 
most of my family. So there, I am the youngest of four. I have an eldest brother and two sisters. Um, of them and their spouses, seven of us have served in the military. So it's literally a family trait for us to, to serve and be in the military. And so um, I started out going to college actually at the University of Southern Mississippi. And so that's Hattiesburg, Mississippi. It's really close um, to Louisiana and New Orleans area. And I started out pre-med microbiology. And so um, you know, the discriminator for most people that start out pre-med microbiology is organic chemistry, and you don't see an MD um, at the back of my name. So therefore, <laughs> I, I, I decided to go a different route. So I really started focusing on, um, on microbiology at that point. And so um, my mom and dad paid for my first two, two years of college. And at that point, my dad talked me into joining the guard to pay for school. So like a lot of young individuals looking for a way to pay for school and pay for college, Louisiana Guard is a great incentive program. Um, and they pay 100% of your tuition for a bachelor's degree. So I had to go to Louisiana school in order to um, take advantage of those benefits. And so like most people, I went to Louisiana State University, which is a great place to live and a great atmosphere uh, to go to college. But it was really big for me and the classes were really big. And so my sister was going to Southeastern Louisiana University and she said, Tina, you should come here. We can go to school together. It's going to be amazing. And so that's what I did. So I wound up selling it at Southeastern Louisiana University. It's a little college in Hammond, Louisiana. It's grown exponentially since I've been there. But um, I started going to Southeastern Louisiana University and just happened to be there at the time when Dr. Gary Howard was there. And he, at the time, was teaching us some really cutting edge. Um, again, this is the late 90s, so cutting edge at the time, looking at molecular biology techniques and, and procedures and research and development. And so I just was really you know, lucky to fall into the university at that time when he was there. And so, um, and the university was so small, they actually don't have a microbiology department. It's a biology department and your concentration is in microbiology and your concentration is in molecular biology. So, um, but, but Dr. Howard was amazing and he was doing, you know, molecular research, like you talked about in polyurethanes. And so yeah. he came from the University of Illinois, which is known for their microbiology programs. Um, so just really brought some amazing research to Louisiana. Um, what we did there is we were looking at, like you said, bioremediation techniques. And so um, the Navy had come to him with a grant to look at bioremediation for polyurethanes because um, every couple of years they sand down their planes because of nicks and, you know, in the paint. And so therefore that, that causes friction, affects the speed of the airframes. And so therefore they'd sand them down and repaint them. And so what do you do with all this polyurethane waste and paint waste and primer waste? And so they were looking for um, bioremediation techniques. And so um, Dr. Howard had worked and had done research and had looked at some of the microorganisms that degrade that naturally. Um, and so we um, were given research projects to 
isolate and characterize those enzymes, as well as the gene, obviously, that expresses that enzyme. And then mm-hmm. we were able to clone that gene from, and if, if you've read my thesis, then you know, but um, Pseudomonas chlorophorus, right? And mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. and then clone that into an E. coli, and that E. coli then expressed that gene and degraded polyurethane too. And for most people that don't know what polyurethane is, a lot of people do, but right, foams, paints, primers, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And so, in that time frame, we were using bioremediation for oil spills, and so this was just another method of using bioremediation to to um, remove of waste in an environmentally friendly way, right? And so we had worked with our chemistry department too in looking at ways to um, synthetically make this this enzyme so that maybe you know, we could use it as a spray or there would be other mm-hmm. applications in which we could use it to not always have to grow up the microorganisms in order to extract the enzymes, et cetera. So, so it was pretty cutting edge at the time. At the time, they didn't even have mm-hmm. benchtop PCR, right? So, right? so we were doing it old school with, you know, polyacrylamide gels, electrophoresis, all of that. So it was many nights late in the lab, you know, making great things happen, but um, really just blessed to have worked underneath Dr. Gary Howard, who had brought me in um, to be underneath him to to get my graduate degree. So that's how I got in this field. Um, And obviously, I was in the military to pay for school. Um, The Louisiana Guard also pays 75% of your master's degree. So it's a really good deal. And so that's why I just continued with my master's degree and doing that research. Um, And then um, where where I really started getting into the CWMD space was at that time, they were standing up um, these weapons of mass destruction civil support teams yep. in the guard. And now there's one in every state and territory, but they needed to um, hire a scientist. Well, at the time, there was not a lot of scientists in the guard. <laughs> and it just happened to be that the the commander of the CST had worked previously with my, my brother-in-law. And he said, you're not going to believe this, but I have, you know, my sister-in-law is is going through officer candidate school. She's going to get her commission this fall. She's working on her master's degree. I think she would nice. be a great candidate for this position. And so at the time the first 10 um, civil support teams were already stood up. So, and, and if you know anything about those, those teams, they're aligned by FEMA regions. So, okay. so Louisiana is in the sixth FEMA region and the sixth um, CST is the Texas team. And so that was our sister team. And so we would train with them and exercise with them. And so literally my interview was I went to a training event with them at the Texas civil support team and I got dressed up in a level A suit, right? So I have the SCBA on my back. I'm zipped up in the big level A suit and I'm doing an interview walking around in this protective (laughs) equipment being asked the question, hey, is this something that you would want to do? Because this is, 
you know, this is the equipment right. we would work in. You would be answering really hard questions of have has um, in this incident has something potentially been used that's nefarious or not, and have to explain to an incident commander the your analysis and your results. And I'm like, sign me up. I'm all in, right? <laughs> so what a great opportunity. So so that's how I became the nuke med science officer for the Louisiana civil support team. And um, and at that time it was a really busy time because not only did 9-11 just happen, but also the anthrax attacks, yeah. right? And so, as you know, the Senate Heart Building. And so we were getting called out for several incidents across the state. And, and so the civil support teams, it's a 22-person team. Um, you have obviously the command element and you have a survey team that goes down range and takes samples. And then you also have your communications team and then you have your medical team. And so I was in the medical team um, as the nuke med science officer working in the analytical laboratory system. And so the survey team would go down range and bring samples to us or to me and my medical NCO. And we would do the analysis and provide that analysis to the incident commander. Um, in the state of Louisiana, state police is in charge um, of any hazardous incidents. So we worked very closely with state and local law enforcement and fire departments, as well as the FBI WMD coordinator. So um, really fun time, a lot going on. Um, and, and we got called out for a lot of incidents and so had to respond to those incidences appropriately. Um, and then, you know, it's again, a very small community, a very small network. And, um, the sister team in Texas was actually, um, training to deploy to go to Iraq to look for WMD. So this was in the 2003 timeframe. I had been on the civil support team from 99 to 2003. And so I got a phone call um, and because they were looking for scientists to help with this mission. Um, and so at that time, I um, talked to my state. They weren't really a big fan of me, um, you know, going overseas at that point. And so, but I really thought this was a good opportunity because we had been training, we had been doing this for all these years. And so I wanted to be a part of that. So um, I went in an inactive status in the guard. You can go in an inactive status for a year okay. where you're not drilling. And I went over and supported that mission as a contractor, um, as a defense contractor, as a bioweapons me looking, mm. helping look for weapons of mass destruction. And I enjoyed it so much that I, I became a civilian with, um, you know, the Defense Intelligence Agency yeah. and continued to work there for, for a few years. Um, so, so very interesting, unique career field. Um, yeah. After that, I decided that I um, wanted to go back to the Guard. So I went back in a Title X status at the National Guard Bureau and became the program manager for the analytical laboratory suites and so, or systems, should I say. And so I got to help with and lead the efforts in the upgrades of those labs. And mm -hmm. so, and in doing that, you know, we were able to work with interagency partners with EPA, with um, 
you know, we, we were incorporating more methods and procedures into the lab, like the food emergency response network. Mm -hmm. So because again, it could be a foodborne outbreak. Um, and so just started to incorporate and, and expand the aperture of the the libraries and the capabilities into the lab. And mm -hmm. so in the lab, we have a GCMS for chemical analysis. Okay. At the time, we had a polarized light microscopy to do, um, you know, for heterogeneous samples, right, which had an infrared on it as well, um, the illuminator. And then we also had um, a biosafety level three cabinet to do the manipulation of the samples in the mm -hmm. lab. And then we had an identifier to look at, you know, radioisotopes and spectroscopy from that perspective as well. So really, really good suite of tools there. And then we also um, had at that time, because, you know, f you know, flash forward, the benchtop PCR. So okay. polymerase chain reaction for DNA analysis, too. So we had a really good suite of tools. Um, and during that time frame, we were able to get the labs accredited. So we went through ISO 17025 accreditation and then also um, put into place a proficiency test for us to send blind samples to the teams in order for them to do that analysis to make sure that the teams were getting the right results, especially you know, when you're providing that analysis to senior leaders, you wanna make sure that our teams are like trained and right. prepared right, and, and can give those results to inform senior leaders. And so, mm -hmm. so, so I did that at the National Guard Bureau for, for several years. And then um, the Guard wanted me to, to move in a different direction and move away from the CMD space. And then, and I really didn't want to do that. And so that's when I jumped and became um, a regular Army Functional Area 52, which is what I've been since 2011. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. been doing yeah. this for for a long time now. Um, Functional Area 52. So right now, I'm the proponent for all Functional Area 52s, um, and that really means that I'm in charge or I'm responsible for the recruiting of new 52s into mm -hmm. the community. Um, it's a pretty small community. We have about 330. Um, members in the army. Mm -hmm. um, and that is also, I have the responsibility of the care and feeding of them, ensuring they, they're trained um, through the 52 qualification course. Um, and then we also, functional 52s were known for our subject matter expertise. We're known for, um, you know, the ability to advise in this mission space. And so right. therefore, what's really important to us is, is education. And so right. when you come into the 52 community, um, if you don't have a master's degree, you will have a master's degree. All mm -hmm. of the 52s at least have a master's degree. And then every year we send um, two to three individuals to go get their PhD too. So Excellent. really important for us to have that foundational education as we look at advising senior leaders in this mission space. Absolutely. So that was a lot. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, it's but... it's it's awesome. I'm I'm sitting here really and enjoying just thinking about you on on this on this journey. And um, yeah, no, a lot to unpack here. And and you know, one be, before we get into um, everything you're doing now uh, per USANCA and and sort of the specific role of the the FA 52s there. I'd love to stop one other place because you know you know obviously 
you're you're making your you know you're demonstrating your extreme proficiency in all things analytical systems and bravery obviously in putting on that suit and going figuring out what that nasty stuff is over there and, and reporting on it um and, and everything you were just talking about is sort of building up this um scientific apparatus which is evolving as you were in this role um one other important piece because and, and this is obviously feeds into what you're doing now but um there was a rather extensive piece on you and a couple other folks that was in rolling stone magazine last year on yes. your your time in syria and um and dealing with um large amounts and uh, 1200 tons of uh, of uh, poisonous gas and I, I completely understand there's parts of the story that you're not allowed to talk about, and that's great. But I, I think there's an important piece here on uh, this is at a much different scale, right? This isn't a few grams of stuff over here. That's um, right. <laughs> 1,200 tons of, of really nasty stuff that you have to uh, manage, transport, uh, denature, get rid of, whatever, incinerate, whatever goes on. Talk a little bit because I think this really, you know, this is this is a whole other level that you, you had to deal with. So walk us through what you're allowed to talk about about that experience because I think this lays out why you're so perfect for what you're doing now. So that that job was my first functional of 52 job. And so there was a lot going on at that time too. So there was the accident at Fukushima. Um, there were missions that were going on in Libya. Um, and then we had um, obviously um, where in Syria, the unrest that was ongoing and then the eventual actual use of chemical weapons. And so I was in the deliberate plans shop um, at STRACOM, Combating Weapons and Mass Destruction Center for CWMD. Um, and so we were part of that operational planning team that were looking at options of what we could do um, in this scenario. And so obviously, I am not the smartest person in the room when it comes to this size and scale of a problem. And so we had this planning team where we brought in subject matter experts across the field and across the, the enterprise to help really work this problem set. And so we had individuals from ECBC, Edgewood Chemical Biological Command at the time. Mm -hmm. We had treaty experts um, from the Defense Threats Defense Threat Reduction Agency. We had individuals that were planners. We had logistics individuals. And so it was really bringing the holistic team together. Mm -hmm. um, and so the four of us just happened to be somewhat of the leads of this planning team, right? And we, because we were in deliberate plans and we um, obviously provided information to senior leaders again to make decisions. Mm -hmm. And so as our boss at the time, Colonel Cinnamon, and this is in the article, went forward to yeah. help develop the framework, um, you know, there was, we were there you know, provided a 24-7 shift, essentially, um, to answer RFIs, requests for information, and provide, you know, any answers that our boss really needed. And during that time frame, it, the discussion came up of, you know, what options do we have to dispose or eliminate these chemical weapons? And so we started doing that mission analysis. You'll hear that in the military a lot. We were doing mission analysis to make, uh, develop courses of action that could be used 
used to eliminate these chemical weapons. And so some of those options were ground options where we had the field deployable hydrolysis system that could um, yeah. um, actually denature, right, degrade those chemical weapons. But the decision was made that there would be no boots on the ground in Syria. So no, we none of us were actually in Syria. We were planning these efforts right sure. here in the U.S. Um, and when that decision was made that no boots were allowed on the ground there, we had to look at other options. And so this was one of the options that was thrown out there. And the joke, you know, if you if you talk to General Santee, he said this at my promotion ceremony. I said, sir, why would you give the Army Major the ship option to run to ground? He said, we thought it was the throwaway COA, Tina. We didn't really think <laughs> that this would come to fruition, right? And right. so again, not being the smartest person on, on vessels, on motor vessels, motor. So I brought in some Marines and, and some folks from Transcom to really help us bring, again, a team together to kind of work through these different options of what vessels were the right vessels. And, and so we really walked with the team, some folks from ECBC, some folks from, um, you know, the organizations that would have to do incineration with effluent. And, and so we walked the vessels and, and asked a lot of questions and did the fact finding of, how much you know water can you produce and how many connexes of chemicals could we put in this space in order to do the neutralization how you know so we we started doing the fact finding and put the facts together and did the code development and this option actually was a feasible option and we presented that to leadership and so um if you talk to some of the other females that were working a lot of people didn't want to touch this this was not an easy <laughs> <laughs> an easy problem to figure out at all um nor was there a lot of confidence that this would go forward and be approved but you know the scientist in me i will tell you is let the facts like speak the truth of what can and cannot be done right and mm -hmm, i think that mm -hmm. that scientist in me was like we'll do the fact finding we'll put the analysis together and if it's a viable option it's up for the senior leaders to make those decisions that's what we do as staff officers we give our best military advice and let the senior leaders make decisions and that's what we did and so when it became the option as is in the article we're like yeah. okay now we actually have to do this so oh, <laughs> and well. so really it was, it, again, it was bringing the team together yeah. um, and working with the whole organization um, through DITRA and all of our partners and in order to, to really start fleshing out, um, making this mission happen and execute. And, and because, you know, I was so close to the planning effort, I got pulled up to be the military assistant for Major General Santee, who was the DITRA deputy director at the time. And so um, as we started to move forward, so I didn't actually even get to go on the vessel on the Cape Ray. Uh, my colleagues were able to, but it was an amazing um, experience and it was it was so awesome to be around. And it just goes to show you that you never know where your career is going to take you and what opportunities are going to be presented um, for you to be able to be part of. And that's, that's, you know, the most amazing part about being yeah. in this, in this career field. I've, I've been in, you know, from operations to research and development, to program management, to strategic planning. Um, and, and so it's just been an awesome ride. That's all I can say. <laughs> 
Yeah, no, and and uh, you know, obviously, you know, that part of the story, and 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 again, everyone listening and watching, I encourage you to go check out on the selling Rolling Stone. But it, it's a really cool article if, if uh, you want to get deeper into the story, and you know, it just it, again, it, it goes to show that. Uh, I mean, you, you did a very successful job with this, and and it just uh, again is a, another in, really cool part of your story. So, um, my hat off to you on that one as well. Um, let's um now let's get to US ANCA, and and if we I call can it just... Usanka for uh, sure, yeah, Usanka, cool. Usanka. not the coffee, not Sanka, but Usanka. Yeah. <laughs> I remember that we used to have Sanka. I you remember that coffee? Yeah, my father <laughs> yeah. used to drink that all the time. Uh huh. <laughs> Yeah, but um, if I could just read here for a moment. So, uh, you know, Yusanko website mission, increase the army and joint force lethality and operational survivability by providing nuclear and countering weapons mass destruction expertise and analysis to inform strategic guidance, plans and policy. Um, also deploying NEAT teams or nuclear employment augmentation teams to support the Army and Joint Force commanders. And then finally, I'll, I'll shut up. Vision, enhance the Army's ability to fight and win in the CBR and contaminated environment. Um, talk, I mean, take us into the organization, its history. Um, I, you know, enjoy going to the website because on one hand, you got a really cool magazine associated with, with the organization uh, on CWMD. You also got a pretty wild insignia, which has a mushroom cloud on it, which is a little creepy, but that's kind of cool too. <laughs> Take us into the background here and what the organization is all about, when it got stood up, and and then we'll talk about FA-52 after that. So literally our history is all the way back to the Manhattan Project. So okay. when you're looking at nuclear operations, this organization has literally can trace the history back to the Manhattan Project. And so if you actually come to our building here on Fort Belvoir, our building is dedicated to Lieutenant General Leslie Groves because yep. of that. And so his son was actually here at the dedication, and I believe it was in 2009. Um, and his son retired as a Lieutenant General as well. And so as we began to build up um, our arsenal um, coming out of World War II, the, the functional Air 52s, that's where we, that's where we were established. And um, we have always been part of the nuclear um, enterprise since then, since the Manhattan Project. And we actually came into um, the G357, our headquarters, Department of the Army, in about the 2008 time, and we've been there ever since. And so we have two roles. We have um, the Army staff role, where we have our Army regulations and our core functions, which are, that's what you're spelling out in Army Regulation mm -hmm. 10-16. And again, military, the best military advice that we can provide to senior leaders to make decisions in plans, in policy, et cetera. And then we have the, the field operating agency role, and that is where we're actually supporting operational commands. And so we have forward planners at Indopaycom, at UCOM, at CENTCOM, so at different organizations. And that gets into what you're speaking to with the core functions, where it's our job, because 
this is a niche community. It's a niche sure. enterprise. Not everyone um, thinks about this problem set and this threat landscape, but sure. it's our job to ensure those equities are included in planning efforts, in policy, in training and exercises to ensure our force is prepared to fight in, and win in those environments. And as you mentioned, you gave a little bit of an introduction to you know what FA fifty two means, and again, uh, one can go and we'll and we'll put links obviously to Usanka uh, in the bio uh, of the show. But you list um, you know in in there's functional competencies that the FA fifty twos need to be good at in terms of understanding nuclear weapons and 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 C, uh, CWMD uh, and, and so forth. Um, and, and and as you're saying, certain technical proficiencies, STEM disciplines, and so forth. Um, I was just wondering, are there also, uh, I don't know if, it, and if you could talk about it, great. If not, that's cool. Um, certain, like, I guess, psychological profiles here that, hey, you know, we don't want very jittery people, but we don't want too gung-ho people. You know, you know what I'm saying? I, I, I saw this cool show on, like, the, the profile of, like, the, the people you want on the mission to Mars. And it was the same type of deal. Like, you don't want a quiet person that's not going to talk to anybody for the journey, but you don't want a gung-ho person because they'll drive everyone crazy. Um any interesting things that make for, in your experience, a good FA-52 officer, aside from the education and the skill set? Well, I would, I would say this. I think that it just, to, to focus a little bit on the STEM background, just recently, yeah. the last few years, we've expanded. It used to, you had to have a STEM degree to be a functional area 52. We've opened that aperture a little bit because obviously we do work a lot in plans and policy. And so right. um, to become a functional area 52, you really transfer, it's called the VTIP. Um, it's the Voluntary Transfer Incentive Program, and that's where um, individuals from different branches, basic branches, actually apply to become a functional area of 52. And so when we look at their backgrounds, we look obviously to see if there is a STEM background, but also yep. we look at are they successful as leaders? Are they successful in their fields, right? Because as we just spoke to, um, I was a very, I still am a very analytical person, but you have to broaden your aperture and get out of the labs and you have to talk to people. You have to communicate to senior leaders. You have to lead efforts and lead individuals. And so you have to have those type of qualities as well, besides just being analytical, because um, a good friend of mine who worked at um, Idaho National Labs told me one time, you have to be able to sometimes, you know, be a PhD and then be able to speak in layman terms to someone that might only have a high school diploma, right? And be able to explain, not saying that our senior leaders have that, just that's the analogy of being able to talk about something that's very scientific and very analytical and speak to it in layman terms to be able to discuss what the threat is and discuss how we prepare and plan for and attempt to mitigate that threat, right? Mm -hmm. And so we look for people that are personable. We look for people that are analytical. We look for people that are leaders because, again, we are supporting Army staffs and you will be briefing and, and um, informing Army senior leaders or interagency leaders. And so that's what we look for. We look for someone that um, is smart, understands the threat, and but then can 
provide that um, translation into um, layman's terms of what we're facing, um, you know, in this mission space. Mm-hmm. Hopefully that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, no, perfect. It's spot spot on. I I, appre- I appreciate that insight about it. Um, talk, talk a little bit about you know you you you've been involved along the way in organizations like DITRA, Defense Intelligence Agency, um, and you know um, you know for instance uh, when uh, Colonel Grace was on the show a few months ago, he you know talked a little bit about the Bluegrass Army Depot. Um, how does USANCA collaborate with some of these other, uh, I'll call them sort of uh, ecosystems of of uh, CW, I'm sorry, yeah, CWMD CWP research and- knowledge. Yeah, I mean, DARPA is another one that we've done a couple episodes. Or how does you sort of, because obviously, you know, as as you're aware, because you're you know a scientist. Um, Science is constantly evolving, and whether it's interesting tools for uh, remediation or, or uh, I don't know how you deal with nuclear stuff, but you, you know, you see where I'm going there. Um, how do you yes. collaborate with some of these research centers that we can profile? Well, some of the some of the collaboration is specific to functions that we're doing, like we talked about the core functions. So some of that, um, depending on if we're looking at professional military education, right? Mm-hmm. So for a long time, we really haven't focused that much on this mission set because we were very clo- focused on the countering um, violent extremist organizations threat. Yeah. And so, you know, we're trying to bring that education and that level of understanding back into professional military education. So therefore, mm-hmm. we work with TRADOC, um, Training and Doctrine Command. Yep. We work with Army Futures Command. We work with those organizations um, in order to ensure that that training is included in that education for the, serv- for the service members, right? Mm-hmm. So it's functional as well. When we look at at capabilities, for example, we work with DITRA to see, um, again, like you said, cutting edge new capabilities for detection and identification and mitigation. And so we work with those organizations to understand what is being developed, but also from the Army staff perspective, what are the Army's requirements, Mm -hmm. right? And so how do those potentially new developing capabilities feed into Army's requirements? Um, And then we also work with organizations in order to just continue to network. Um, And so, yes, we do work with um, NGIC, you know, National Ground Intelligence Center Mm -hmm. and some of the intelligence organizations just to continue to understand um, what the threat is and how it's evolving. And you can see that on a day-to-day basis. And if when you read the newspapers of how the threat has evolved over the last 10 years. And so part of it's understanding the threat. Part of that is, again, working with capability developers, and that's sometimes material solutions and sometimes non-material solutions. And so, and then sometimes, obviously, we are still, um, we have a PhDs and MDs mm-hmm. that work here, and we want them to continue um, with the the cutting edge knowledge. And so we have individuals that are constantly looking at journals um, in order to bring those into the organization or going to conferences where they can engage with 
other professionals that are still doing research and development or or um, think tanks and how yep. they are viewing the problem. And so we try to look at it holistically. Um, and then we engage with those different um, organizations, obviously, to maintain understanding, as well as to look at potential capabilities that could be brought to bear in for the future force. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's a similar question on, on the private sector side, because I've, you know, profiled some of the groups like uh, AFWorks and Naval X at the Pentagon, which sort of act like little venture capital units for sort of defense tech and, and partnering with small companies. Um, th- does that also happen with you, Sank? And then I was thinking of, because I'm, I'm sitting here in Philly uh, and across the river, you know, was uh, this was. I don't know, 15 or so years ago, but there's a, a DuPont facility in, in New Jersey where they were working on sort of denaturing VX at the time. And that was causing a bit of a problem. But obviously, DuPont's not a small company, but uh, private sector sort of collaboration. Uh, is that something you get involved in at all? So we usually, so SOCOM has a coordinating authority for CWMD, mm-hmm. um, US SOCOM. And so we get invited to events that other people are holding. So they they held an event recently, um, which was a research and development and acquisition experimentation. Yep. And so we were we were invited to that event where they had several vendors that again were showing the different capabilities that we're developing um, and showing us actually experimenting with different scenarios of how it could be used, getting end user feedback. Um, because again, as we know, sometimes a vendor is like, no, this is man portable. Well, that's a hundred pounds and that's yeah. like two thirds <laughs> of what I weigh, not right. to mention all the other gear that I have to carry. So it's not really man portable, but again, it's getting that end user feedback. And yeah. so we don't necessarily host those events, but we attend those events. We're invited to those events to look at it from the army, sir, you know, from the service perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. Um, Tina, what, um, looking out a bit, I mean, obviously, you know, you're a scientist that has all this operational responsibility now, but clearly, you know, you keep your, you know, uh, no doubt your eyes on the journals and and everything that's happening uh, in in these different scientific ecosystems. What emerging STEM tools excite you? Is it artificial intelligence? Is it synthetic biology? Obviously, there's a lot of new stuff coming along that, you know, as you were mentioning before, you saw the evolution of it as you've been involved in it. But are there interesting areas, whether it's chemical, biochemical, whatever, that um, you're excited about looking out uh, in the coming years that helps USANCA do do its job better, <laughs> whether it's decontaminating something or, or whatever the case may be? I think for me, Obviously, from the bio background, and the Army is leading some efforts in biodefense right now, too, obviously, with the first ever bio posture review mm-hmm. um, and the national biodefense strategy. So there's some things that are exciting in the bio space right now. And I would say just from a personal, you know, from Tina's perspective, there's some really great capability. Again, when we talk about sequencing and benchtop sequencing. Again, when I was in grad school, we had to send that to another university in order to, to, you know, get our DNA sequenced or to get our genes sequenced. And so to just, that is amazing to me that now you can sequence right there on a benchtop and potentially even forward because, um, Oftentimes, as, as we know, if it's not in your library or you don't have an assay for it, you really don't know 
what Right. you know, that bio agent potentially is. And so that gives us an opportunity to get ahead of um, medical, medical countermeasures and uh, prophylaxis and those type of things. And so for me, that's exciting um, for us to be able to potentially identify um, bioorganisms. And again, if, if you look at, um, you know, the biodefense strategy, you know, it, it's the, the threat has changed coming out of COVID it, it could be a naturally occurring disease. It, it does not have to be something that we think of as normal bioweapons. And, and I'm excited that we're looking at this problem set differently because public health now is part of that. And the medical community is part of that discussion. And it's not just the CWMD enterprise anymore, because again, coming out of, of uh, COVID, a pandemic, yeah. right, changes the game. And so now there are new um, capabilities that are being developed and there's new ways of looking at this problem set and it's bringing, it's a forcing function to bring communities together that didn't necessarily work together previously, which is exciting to me because now, you know, public health may see something, you know, from a surveillance perspective or, you know, um, and that's, and they're working closely again with the medical community because there could be people coming in that are sick the hospital or, you know, it could be also, you know, the next indications of warnings of, of what the next pandemic could be for us to get ahead of that and yeah. to keep the force safe and, to, and actually just to keep the communities safe at large, right? Because mm -hmm. this is a global problem now, yeah. or potentially it was, right? And so we obviously, as a, as a pandemic, we want to keep people as safe as possible and protect the force, obviously, and to get ahead of those types of situations as much as possible. So bringing the communities together is exciting to me. The new technologies that are now at your bench top are exciting yeah. to me in order for us to develop those medical countermeasures or countermeasures that we can, again, take care of the force and take care of the community at large. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Really awesome. Um. And one last thing, while we're on that theme, just thinking about it, as you were just saying, um, you know, I, I guess it, it shouldn't take a pandemic to get um, the next generation uh, of STEM folks interested in studying, hey, uh, bi molecular biology or biotech, whatever. Um, I know you get out there, you know, you, uh, sort of, you know, you're talking about what you do in sort of the world of STEM and the next generation of students and so forth. Any messages while we have you as sort of, you know, uh, obviously I'm listening to you. I know why this is all cool and, and these things, but messages for that next generation, maybe my kid, well, I make my kids listen to the show, but uh, <laughs> of why, you know, messages about STEM, why this is such an important space to, uh, to focus on, whether it's nuclear, whether it's radiologic or biochemical. I would say this. I think I've always been excited about science. Science was my favorite subject in high school. It's, it's to me, Science is everywhere, and so it's exciting. But I think for me, when I like to, I've been able to speak at, at WISE, the Women yep. in Science and Engineering you know, Symposium, and for me, it's just explaining the opportunities that are available to you. Because I think some people, they're like, okay, I'm going to get this science degree. I don't really know what I'm going to do with it. I don't know how, I can't 
see myself in 10 years. And, and sometimes it's just the baby steps, right? Sometimes the stars align, like my brother-in-law talking to the right person at the right time for me to get that job or that interview to get the job. And sometimes it's just, you know, taking a step and a leap of faith in the, in going in the right direction. But, but what I like to say is that I am just one example of what you can do with a STEM background. And one example of all the opportunities in the Department of Defense that you, because you don't have to be in the military. We work hand in glove with civilians and contractors that are doing the same thing. And so again, you can be developing capability, you can develop policy and doctrine, you can conduct operations, you can be part of strategic planning efforts. And so there is so much that you can do in this space that I don't know that was even available or thought of previously. But again, it's just, you know, the aperture is wide open now. And so and it, and it's getting more specific because of all of the new tech technologies and AI. And, and so there's just I can't even imagine where we're going to be in 15 years in this space because it's growing. The biotechnology yeah. and just technology in general is just exponentially growing. And so just be open. That's what I usually tell them. Be open for opportunities that are presented. Yeah. And sometimes a mentor like Dr. Howard you know, yeah. sees the potential in you and kind of brings you in and takes you over the fold. Sometimes the stars align. And sometimes you take hard jobs just because – it's the right thing to do. And then you make the best of it. Like we say in the military, you know, bloom where you're planted because we move so often, right? Do the mm -hmm. best you can, you know, and the team will come together and you'll make great things happen. And so that's what I would say is that be open. There's a ton of opportunity. Um, have good mentors that can help kind of guide you in some directions mm -hmm. and and doors will open. They They will open for you. It's an, it's an awesome message. And um, yeah, I, um, you know, think again, thinking through the story you've been telling us and, and seeing, I mean, it, it, it happening in real time for you and, and you constantly adjusting, but, you know, overcoming each of these obstacles that you came to, it's just a, it's an extremely impressive story, Tina. Um, what, you know, as we get, we're almost, we're almost at the end of the year now. Um, what can we look forward to in terms of uh, Colonel Tina Schoenberger in 2024? Uh, stuff that you can talk about, of course. Um, conferences that you're going to be presenting at, upcoming initiatives that we should know about. Anything else I didn't touch on while we have uh, you today, please. So we, we always have conferences. Again, we support SOCOM's conferences where we come together as a community because they're the coordinating authority for CWMD. Um, we work very closely with 20th Seaburn uh, Command, and so we'll be part of some of the engagements there um, with the leadership in 20th Seaburn Command. Um, we actually are we're going to have another podcast and we're looking at, it's called Breaking Doctrine, where we're looking at updating doctrine and looking again at the threat landscape. So look for that podcast to come out in the near awesome. future. We are trying to um, really work on our external communications and our strategic messaging. And so that's that's why we're looking forward to these podcasts and, and our LinkedIn site and our website in order to share some of the training opportunities that we have 
in the enterprise, um, some of the conferences that we're going to be at, some of the training that we've been part of, like Combined Resolve, there were some um, radiological survey lanes where individuals, again, are training in this mission space that we haven't really, um, not, not saying it wasn't a priority and we haven't done it, but there's a, there's a, more of a focus now in this space again because the threat has changed so much. Mm -hmm. And so some of those outward facing strategic communication opportunities, um, we will post those on, on our website. And so you can look forward to seeing some of those in the next year. And, and again, we'll be putting um, links to all this uh, in the bio of the show. So folks uh, watching and listening can, can check out everything up to um, one final question. While I have you the, the most serious question of the show, I have to ask based on uh, the beginning of our story here, but uh, jambalaya or etouffee? <laughs> jambalaya. Uh, I was just, always I to, jambalaya okay. for me. Okay. You know, people often ask me, um, you're from New Orleans. What's your favorite food? I said, well, it depends on what meal we're talking about, right? If you're talking breakfast, you might be going to Brennan's. You might be getting, oh, yeah. you know, banana fosters, that type of thing. But if you're talking dinner, you're talking jambalaya, you could be talking a crawfish bowl, right? Mm. So, you know, it really just depends on which meal. And if you want you know, my husband is from Pennsylvania, too. And he said, I have tried to find a bad meal in Louisiana, in New Orleans, and I just can't no. do it. And that goes for the mom and pop shops, right, to the extremely fancy places like Commander's Palace. And so I right. think, you you know, I tell my team here, being from New Orleans, like food is my love language. That's why I work out a lot so I can enjoy <laughs> food. And um, but I'm a jambalaya girl. I love me some, you know chicken and sausage jambalaya nice. Nice. yes yeah yeah you can't find bad food in in, in new orleans it's but you really can't, you, you can't find good cajun food up here in pennsylvania so I'll, <laughs> that's true <laughs> but that's a different story that's a different um, story that's a different yeah. story yeah um really amazing stuff tina i've you know have so excited uh you know leading up to recording this show um it's everything i expected it to be and i just really wish you uh your entire team there much success uh in, in everything you're doing and, and, and continue to do uh in, in keeping us all safe um again for everybody who's going to be listening to this particular episode of our show uh, across the various uh, podcast networks or watching on our youtube channel Again, you've been spending time with the amazing Colonel Tina Schoenberger, Director of USANCA, the United States Army Nuclear and Countering Weapons of Mass Destruction Agency. Um, Tina, again, I want to thank you for taking the time out of your schedule to come talk to us, educate us on all these topics and what you're up to. Obviously, thank you for what you do and your long service to the United States. And, and as we like to say on our show, thanks for helping to create a better tomorrow for the types of things you're working on. Really a great story. Well, thank you for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And, you know, any time that we can talk, it's a good time to talk about what we're doing right for the army and what we're doing for the for the U.S. government. And you're right. This is a great opportunity for us to share the amazing things that we're doing every day um, to, to take care of the Joint Force and the Army Force. Um, and I'm just I'm just honored to be part of it. I'm honored to have been put in this position. And I appreciate you taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. It was an awesome discussion. It was great seeing you. Great seeing you too. Take care.